copies of God's Word in hand. Speaking of miraculous things. And turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2, where our sermon text will be verses 36 through 42. That is Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 42. Hear now the word of God. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were, and were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, the words that we have just read are not the words of man. They are the words of a holy God. And they were just read by the mouth of a sinner. And they went into the ears of those who are also sinners. Father, what we ask, we do not deserve. What we ask for, we do not deserve. But we're going to ask for it because you are a gracious God who saves sinners. So, Father, we would ask that this word would act as a two-edged sword, that it would cut us into our hearts, just as it did these Jews at the day of Pentecost. And that, Father, the other edge of the sword would bind us, would cauterize the wound, that we might be conformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, may your glory be put on display through this word and then through our lives today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this morning, um, in the Sunday school hour, um, um, I gave a little bit of my testimony. Um, And one of the things that I spoke about was when I was five years old, my parents uh, divorced over uh, religious differences. Um, uh, the main difference was, uh, it was a pretty big one, my dad was Presbyterian and my mom was Pentecostal. Um, if you don't know much about the Pentecostal faith, uh, Pentecostals believe in the ongoing use of the charismatic gifts. Things like miracles, prophesying, and most specifically speaking in tongues. When we come to this text, this is all taking place at Pentecost. Pentecost is an important event, and it's full of these miracles, 
full of these, 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 this, this, this tongue speaking. And something that was a big part of my life when I was young at my mother's church. Now, one thing that was always emphasized in my mother's church was the work of the Holy Spirit. But only as it was manifested in these miracles. Now, we as Presbyterians do not believe that the time for the miraculous gifts has come and it is gone. We believe that gifts of tongues and healings and stuff like that, that these were given to, like I was saying in the children's sermon, to confirm the word. Like, how do you know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins? Because he says, rise, take up your bed and go home. And what does the guy do? He rises, he takes up his bed and goes home. How can you trust that Christ Jesus is a savior for sinners? Because he did that. How were the Jews able to trust that when Peter stands up and says that Joel 2 has been fulfilled in their healing, that it actually has miracles? But now here we are 2,000 years later. Hasn't it been confirmed to us already? It seems that when you read through the New Testament that these, these miraculous gifts served a temporary purpose. Actually, even when you read, um, uh, when you read Paul's letters, um, as, you get, as, you talk, as, you, as you're early on in those letters, he talks about miracles and things like that. But when you get into the later letters, he doesn't mention them anymore. Why? Because he didn't see them as, as, as having a continu- continuing significance. And so, though I disagree, so I, so I disagree with my, with my mom's church, with the Pentecostals, and how these miracles worked and how the Holy Spirit works. But in my life as a Presbyterian, I see maybe another issue. It seems that a lot of Presbyterians don't know what to make of the Holy Spirit's work, especially in the life of the church. We have in our confession lots of, lots of talk about what the Holy Spirit does in our salvation, how it enlightens our mind and enlighten, renews our hearts, takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, but when we come together, when you, when you wake up on Sunday morning and you, you come to church and you sit in these pews and, and we give the, the prayer of invocation where we ask that the Holy Spirit would fall upon us, what are we asking for? What is it exactly that the Holy Spirit is doing? What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? That is what I want to talk about this morning. Now, we're not going to talk about everything that the Holy Spirit does. That would be like a week-long lecture. So it's not, so, so don't, don't make me say, you forgot to mention this. We're not going to talk about everything that the Holy Spirit does. But there are three things that I want us to see that, that the Holy Spirit does in ministry. First of all, I want us to look at how the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit in his ministry causes us to grieve. The second thing I want us to know about the Holy Spirit and what he does in ministry is how he points us to Christ Jesus. And then thirdly, I want us to see how the Holy Spirit ministers to us the love of God. And then the cherry on top, I want us to see what that has to do with what we do as believers. What the ministry of the Holy Spirit has to do with the ministry of Salem ARP. And so our text today comes, as I mentioned, in the aftermath of Pentecost. Now, a little trick question that I always like to ask my students in my New Testament class, I always ask, 
where does the New Testament begin? And the, the, the answer is always, tons of hands go up, Matthew. That's the first gospel, that's where the New Testament begins. My Bible, even when you open it up to it, it says New Testament. But that's not actually right. The New Testament doesn't actually begin, the New Covenant doesn't actually begin until our text today, Acts chapter 2. Because here's the thing, the old, the, the new cannot come until the old has gone away. And so when you get into the Gospels, the ministry of Christ, you're in kind of this weird gray zone. The old is dying, but it's not quite dead. And the new is being birthed, but it's not quite born yet. It's still to come. And what is it waiting for? The accomplished work of Jesus Christ. His work is not accomplished until the hour of his glorification, when he is crucified, dead, buried, and then risen again. And then as he's ascending into heaven, he has these 120, 120 disciples who are now called apostles. They're waiting in an upper room. He says, wait until I send the helper. Wait until I send the Holy Spirit. And so they sit there in that room and they wait and they wait. And then in Acts 2, at the Feast of Pentecost, there's a sound like a mighty rushing wind. The room is filled with the Holy Spirit. Tongues of fire descend upon the heads of those in there. They come out of the room. They begin to speak in tongues. And by tongues, I don't mean gibberish actual languages that other people were able to hear and understand. And they say to each other, we hear them proclaiming the mighty works of God in our own language. What is going on? They begin to think, well, perhaps they're drunk. And so this rumor gets spread that they're getting, they're, 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 they're drunk in the morning. And then Peter comes to him and says, no, 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 no. They're not drunk. It's only the ninth hour. This isn't alcohol that has done this. This is the fulfillment of Joel 2, where God promises that I will pour out my spirit up on all flesh, and that I would give all flesh the power and authority to minister my mighty works. And then he begins to preach a sermon. So if you want to know what the mighty works of God that the people are speaking about in Acts 2, it's Peter's sermon. It's Jesus. That is the mighty work of God that they are proclaiming. And so then Peter opening up the scriptures, really focusing in on Psalm 16 and, and Psalm 110, and the ears of these Jews begins to explain to them that this Jesus of Nazareth is nothing less than the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David who has promised to ascend and to sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. What a time to be a fly on the wall. To when the new covenant comes raining down upon these people. But the celebration is short-lived. When you come to verse 36, our opening verse today, how does Peter end his sermon? He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Notice what he does here. He splits this into two sections. The first part is he wants to tell the people what God did in relation to the Messiah. He says God lifted him up. 
God gave him a name above all other names. God gave him a throne and gave him authority and gave him dominion. God put his own glory upon his son. But what did you do? You crucified him. You killed him. He's your Messiah. He is your king. He is your savior. And you murdered him. These are Jews. These are not Gentiles. These are Jews. These are the covenant people of God, children of Abraham. It is one thing to sin. It is another thing to sin while in covenant. It is one thing to sin. It's another thing to come into a, to be raised into a church, to be baptized, to sit with your parents to sit with your brothers and sisters in Christ, to sit under the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then to sin against him. It is one thing to rebel against authority. It is another thing to rebel against love. But when a Christian sins, that's exactly what he does. What does this do to us? Shame? Does it bring guilt? Does it make you feel about this low? It should. But that's a good thing. That is a wonderful thing. Because that is a work of the Holy Spirit. I speak to students quite often who deal with guilt. A lot of times it's, it seems really that they don't even really shouldn't even feel guilty about it. There's one student that I taught in Hattiesburg who had parents who were getting divorced and he had a lot of guilt about that. Um, he had, and it was causing him to, to act out a lot. And I would talk to him a lot about like, like why he would do these things. Like I'd come, come to school and I'm, I, I'm, I'm, and I dedicate myself. Like I'm, I'm going to do better. And then I'm 30 minutes into it and I'm already being sent to the principal's office. What is wrong with me? There was a lot wrong with him. But you know what wasn't wrong with him? What was right about him is that he knew that there was something that was wrong with him. That is a lot more than can be said for a lot of us. When Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, this is, their, this is the chief thing that is wrong with them. It wasn't that they weren't sinners. It's that they did not know that they were sinners. They did not know they needed a physician. They did not know they needed a savior. These Jews here today they have come to understand that they need a savior. They have come to understand their guilt, that this is their king, that this is their Messiah, and they killed him. We often don't want to think about guilt for sin, do we? We live in a world now where when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel, we would much prefer to tell people how if they just believed in Christ, things will just start going better for them. Well, you've experienced some type of injustice. Somebody said something mean to you. Maybe there's, maybe there's a sickness or something like that. or uh, Maybe there's some type of mental suffering that is going on and say, well, if you just believe in Jesus, well, then he'll just heal all that. And, and I'm not here to deny that, that, that Christ doesn't do that. When Christ ministers, he brings with him a part of that new heavens and new earth. But friends, that's not why we go to the cross. The cross is not a hospital for sick people. The cross is a refuge 
for sinners seeking refuge from the wrath of God for their sin. In Acts chapter 8, you have the story of Philip ministering the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch. Now I'm going to get too much into what all that implies. But needless to say, the man had suffered some grievous injustice in his life. He had suffered. He's laboring probably under, under the, under the uh, servanthood of a, of a king or a queen or, or something like that. Philip sees this eunuch riding in a chariot, and it would have been very easy for Philip to run to him and say, look, it's, it's very clear that you've undergone some pretty rough stuff here. Let me tell you about how Jesus makes it all better. Now, he runs to him and he says, what are you reading? And the Ethiopian says, I'm reading... This, about this suffering servant guy in the scroll of Isaiah, and I have no idea what it's talking about. He says he's, he's pierced for my transgressions. What does that mean? Is this Isaiah speaking, or is he speaking of somebody else? And then Philip opens up the text to him, and he says, this is about Jesus Christ, who is pierced for your transgressions, who God was pleased to condemn for your sin." For your, not your shortcomings, but your willful disobedience against God. He doesn't mention the fact that he's a eunuch. He doesn't mention the fact that he's a slave. He says, you stand before a holy God and you will be judged, you will be judged guilty and under his wrath unless you yoke yourself to his son, Jesus Christ. We don't like the idea of guilt for sin. It's much easier to point to injustice or pain and suffering. And it's no doubt that many of us have come to Christ because of things like that. But here's the thing. If it is not guilt, if we have not brought our guilt to the cross, then I'm afraid the cross has done us no good. That we don't understand our, even, even our, our need for the cross of Christ. For Christ came to save not the sick, not the needy, not the poor, not the slave, but the sinner. Guilt is an intrinsical part of this. This is why they say in verse 37, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? This is the first part of repentance. Guilt driving us to the cross. This leads us to the second work of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is not content to just leave us there in despair and in guilt. The Spirit's chief work is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As John Flavel, the great Puritan, has said, when the Holy Spirit comes to us, he does, not do, he does not do so with empty hands as a beggar looking to take, but he comes bearing gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, teaching, servants, hospitality, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But the most primary of all of these gifts is the person and work of Jesus Christ himself and all of his benefits. He brings to us the blood that poured from his wounds so that our wounds might be healed. He comes bearing divine forgiveness because Christ has accomplished what is necessary for our salvation. He comes and spreads the righteous garments of Christ's perfect obedience over us so that our shame might be hidden from his sight. And isn't that a wonderful thought? 
that God omnipotent, God all omniscient, and all of his knowledge and all that he is, if you're in Christ, cannot see your sin. It is cast into the sea. It is out of his sight. He looks at you and he sees a beloved son. Though you are a wretch, you are righteous in his sight purely because he saw fit to give to you the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And now you are not just his, you are in him. This is what the Spirit's chief work is. When he studied theology, like I studied it in seminary, the most difficult thing for me to study was pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. And you know why? Because the Bible doesn't say much about him. You know why I don't think the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about the Holy Spirit, exactly who he is and what he's like? Because the point of the Spirit's ministry is to point. It's a point to Christ. He doesn't point to himself. He points to Jesus. Do you want to know if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Don't look for miracles. Don't, don't be like me when I was eight years old trying to speak in tongues. Ask yourself, do you cherish Christ? Do you look for him? Do you look to him for your salvation? Do you look for do you look to him for for everything in your life? For 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 forgiveness for being a, a poor mother, a poor husband, a poor father, for being a poor son or daughter? Do you do you come to him because you want to be reconciled to God? Is that the case? If you do, that is the Holy Spirit's ministry. The natural man does not want this. It was not through works of the law that you came to know the Spirit. It is through the grace of God. We came to love Christ, as Paul says in Romans 5.5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this is the third work of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of love. He ministers guilt. He ministers Christ. And then once he has ministered Christ, he ministers the love of of the triune God. St. Augustine of Hippo, I believe rightly said, that the Holy Spirit is the bond of love in the, within the Trinity. That the Father loves the Son, the Son is the beloved, and the Holy Spirit is that love. Well, what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with being a Christian and our love for God and our love for one another? Let me read for you just a, a smattering of different verses from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. That we, the church, might be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. I in them and you in me and they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see what that's saying here? 
It's not that you're just, you're not just merely the object of divine love. You're a participant in divine love. If you are united in Christ, you are united in the triune love that the Godhead has for itself. How much does God love you? How much does God love God? How much does the Father love the Son? How much does the Son love the Father? If you have the Spirit, you have that, that you're bound by that love. And how deep is our need for a Father's love? Isn't that what we want? Ernest Hemingway wrote a little short story a while back. Um, it's about a boy in Spain who had a spat with his father. The boy's name is Paco. Paco has a little fight with his father. Um, he runs away. He runs to Madrid. His father seems to be okay with it until his father hears back from his son that his son has given himself over to be a bullfighter. Well, that's a very dangerous profession. And the father hears that and he says, well, I, I don't want my son. I don't, I don't, I don't want my, this fight to drive my son to his death. And so his father goes to Madrid, and he begins to seek out his son, but he can't find his son because Madrid's a very big city. And so he, out of desperation, he takes out an ad in a local newspaper. And in this ad, uh, and in this ad he says, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. And this is how Hemingway finishes the story. Paco is such a common name in Spain that when the father went to the Hotel Montana the next day at noon, there were 800 Pacos waiting for their father and waiting for the forgiveness that they thought they would never have. That story, when I read it years ago, has really just stuck with me. Because doesn't that say something about us? We look for, we, 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 we don't even know what we're looking for, but we look for it in, in money and relationships and all this other stuff that just, just kind of fades away. But what we're looking for is what Adam lost in the fall. We're looking to be reconciled with God. We're looking to be reconciled with our Father, just as all 800 Pacos saw that ad in that newspaper and said, That's, could that be my daddy? The Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit, he hangs that sign in our heart. All is forgiven. Love your heavenly Father. He doesn't put it out there for us to come to it. He puts it right in here. It's never far away from us. But what does this have to do with our ministry as a church, as the people of God? Well, it has everything to do with it. Look at with me in verse 42. This is a description of the Lord's Day worship. It would have taken place on a Sunday in the early first century, during the earliest part of the church. But when you look at it in relation for what comes before it, it seems kind of boring, doesn't it? I mean, you've had rushing wind, you had tongues of fire, you had people speaking in tongues that they didn't know before, you have people repenting, you have people being baptized, and you have 3,000 people in one fell swoop all coming to Christ. And then what do they do? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. I mean, that's it. I mean, I've been, I've been coming here and doing the same thing for 35 years now. 
I mean, after a while, it gets kind of old. But this is what they do. They they don't they don't throw a party. They don't do they don't they don't throw in a bunch of entertaining things, concerts and things like that. You I mean they just kind of stuck with the same old same old boring stuff? Uh, and how many churches today have fallen into this kind of idea that what we do here is dull? Uh, when, when I was when I was uh, ministering in Hattiesburg, there was a church uh, down the road that had a like they called it a revival. I wouldn't call it a revival. Where they had a, a a month long series where on Sundays they would just show movies, and then the pastor would get up there and make a few spiritual applications for the movie, and then move about their business. Their membership went through the roof. They called it a revival. That's not a revival. There was another church that made an anthem for themselves on a Fourth of July service, which we can already have an issue with that. They have a 4th of July service, and then in the middle of it, they have people dressed in military outfits rappelling into the pulpit from the rafters. You better believe that put people in seats. That's not boring. That's entertaining. But that's not what the first century church wanted. They didn't want to be entertained They wanted what the Spirit had been ministering to them already. They wanted to know who Jesus was. They wanted him ministered to them. They wanted to minister him to each other. And this is what they have in this little verse. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. How do they learn about Jesus? How do we learn about Jesus? Is it not through the the works of the apostles, the books of the New Testament? They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They had all things in common. Their fellowship wasn't just hanging out with one another. It was costly to, to, it was costly to them. And they had to sacrifice something. Why was it worth it? Because by sacrificing themselves, they were proclaiming Christ to others. They devoted themselves to the breaking of the, uh, breaking of the bread. This is a reference to the Lord's Supper, a meal that we partake in uh, with, uh, in fellowship with one another as we celebrate our fellowship in Jesus Christ. And then finally, they devoted themselves to the prayers. This is most likely ancient liturgical prayers, probably something like the glory to Pantry that many churches sing. Glory be to the Father and to the Son, the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. The prayers. This ministry not sound part and parcel to the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Does it not in every aspect proclaim Christ in some way? By sitting under the teaching of the apostles, do we not sit under the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he points us to Christ? Is this not why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Woe to me if I do not preach Christ crucified? By fellowshipping together, do we not minister the fellowship of Christ to one another in a tangible way? Dick Lucas, a, a Anglican, a Anglican pastor, I love that he puts it this way. He says, "We very much have an invisible religion. We believe in a Savior we can't see. He made an atonement that we did not see. We're indwelt by a Holy Spirit that we cannot see. We hope for things that we cannot see. But when we get together, when we fellowship and love one another." our invisible religion becomes very visible. It is put on display. By partaking of the sacraments, once again, our union with Christ is made real. We can see, taste, and smell his atonement. 
And just as our bodies are nourished by the bread and our hearts are made glad by the wine, so our souls are nourished and brought to the heights of joy by our partaking of Jesus Christ, a ministry of the Holy Spirit. And through our prayers, we commune with Christ through the Holy Spirit, who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is what the Holy Spirit does. So in conclusion, and I think this is the most important thing that we can learn today, and this of the most importance, how do you know that we're a spirit-filled church? You will know that the church is filled with the Holy Spirit when it is focused upon Christ. When we are spirit-filled and led, that is exactly what we do. We minister Christ, the healer to the afflicted. We minister Christ, the shepherd to those who have stumbled in the way. And we minister Christ, the savior to sinners. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would please forgive us for not acknowledging the ministry of your spirit in our midst. Father, we especially ask that you would forgive us for not for not for not focusing on what the what the spirit who the spirit ministers to us the personal work of your son Jesus Christ father we'd ask that you would not merely forgive us of that sin but you would cause it to be that it will never be again that we will be Christ focused and that we would be that we would become imitators of the spirit as he ministers Christ to others Father, we'd ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us stand together.